Welcome to the latest edition of MPM's podcast. Joining us today is Alan Marks, a partner at Millbank LLP and a member of the firm's Global Project Energy and Infrastructure Finance Group. Alan, thanks for joining us today. Hey, John, thanks. It's a pleasure. Uh, Alan's here to discuss some general market trends and uh, the energy pound grill in the room as of this weekend and this morning, Silicon Valley Bank. Um, the FDIC, of course, seized control of the bank over the weekend after a very uh, rapid decline. On a LinkedIn post on March 12th, Fred Turner, the head of SVP's Project Finance Group, said it had made uh, $5 billion in, quote unquote, sustainable finance commitments in his long tenure with the bank. This would include a major role in arranging financing for uh, renewable projects. Uh, Alan, before we get into it, um, uh, we we probably want a disclaimer there about uh, Millbank and SVP, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, because you were so kind to give a banking crisis right before our recording, I feel uh, <laughs> compelled to mention. You know, views are my own alone. Uh, you know, Millbank has represented uh, parties in transactions involving Silicon Valley Bank. We've represented the bank in the past as well in in in, sol in the solar space. Um, so I'm not going to be able to share anything that's confidential or or that uh, represents anybody's views other than my own. Thank you. Um. So, um, you know, through uh, NPM stories and some of our data, you can see, obviously, um, you know, SVP's had a very busy year lending to renewable uh, developers. Um, it's taken the role of project finance for the most part. Um, there's also been some corporate loans as well, just a mix. Um, I guess getting to the project finance loans, um, what do you think is going to uh, happen to these revolvers, delayed tra term loans? Um, moving forward as a result of SVB? Yeah, so I, I think it's a, it's a good question. I like that you're, you're asking it from a different point of view because most people are looking at, you know, well, what about depositors? And the answer is, well, the government's going to take care of them. They're, they're going to you know, keep their money and have access to it this week. Since the regulators, the California regulator and the FDIC as receiver, uh, you know, together with Treasury and the Fed, were so quick to uh, step up and cover not just insured deposits, but also uninsured deposits. Uh, beyond what was required to set up liquidity facilities to prevent this from having a contagion to other banks in the system uh, systemically. So then the question is, well, wait, well, what if you're a borrower uh, from Silicon Valley Bank? And for, you know, for a bank that people think of outside of our industry as being mainly a tech-focused bank, I think it's, it's pretty important to note the role that they play in project finance, and especially in the solar space. And this means loans to companies involved in developing developing. Uh, especially rooftop, CNI, distributed generation. Uh, you know, they they really uh, Silicon Valley Bank had a very strong niche in that area, and they had a very strong team of people uh, that were that were you know able to underwrite and originate uh, loans uh, in in that space. So if you're a borrower and you wake up on Monday morning uh, and you owe the bank money, well, uh, you may owe a successor to the bank money, and nothing's really changed. If you have an unfunded loan commitment, whether that's a revolving loan or a corporate facility or what have you, um, then the question is how can you, how easily or quickly can you replace that piece of your capital stack? And I would say there's, you know, still uh, other banks available. There's, I think, other non-bank lenders, uh, private credit facilities. There's still a, a very large, I hate to use the word, but ecosystem of, of, of lenders in this space that are capable of picking up those pieces. So. I think in in the near term, people will be appropriately concerned, but they'll ultimately have, have, I think, no trouble filling in the blank. Now, why is that? I think it's because inherently, these are sound credits. So other lenders would love 
to have these customers, would love to have these loan commitments to be able to get in. Um, and probably would also love to have the people who were at Silicon Valley Bank who were, you know, so skilled in, in putting these packages together. So I, I, I suspect that this will uh, be an inconvenience, but certainly not a disaster for, for, the, for the companies in this space. Thanks for that. Um, just getting to SVB's uh, book of corporate loans, uh, again, beyond uh, renewables, obviously, they built their reputation um, lending into the tech sector and created some niche uh, sectors of their own as well, biotech and uh, wine, uh, among other areas. Um, what do you think is going to happen to this uh, book? Is this going to become a part of a, a sales, the sales process that's ongoing? Uh, is there a, a deal to be had just for these book of loans, maybe on a piecemeal basis? What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, that's kind of up to the FDIC as the receiver, because when they step in to cover the deposits, the taxpayers will not be out of pocket to, to, to cover that. It's going to come from the assets of the bank that's um, uh, been, been taken over. And those assets, if you didn't have to sell them, if you did not have to sell them quickly on a rush basis, mark to market, uh, then you know, you'd have ample assets to cover the, the liabilities and then some. You know, Remember, for a bank, if you look at their balance sheet, it's the opposite of the rest of us. When a bank takes in deposits, you think of them having all this cash in the vault and gee, great, those are assets. Well, they're not. For a bank, a deposit is a liability because people, as we can see, may take their money out and the bank has to give them that money. And if Silicon Valley Bank had had plenty of runway, if they had not had a run on the bank, uh, if there had not been a strong correlation right, between their deposit base's exposure to interest rate rising, uh, interest rates rising, and the way that the bank invested the money that it did have, over half of it in long-term government securities, which are are safe and in the long term, long run are you know highly liquid and uh, uh, available to cover liabilities, including withdrawals of deposits. Bank would have been fine. Uh, so I, you know I suspect that the FDIC will find that there's, and based on public disclosures, we'll find that there's there's plenty of securities and liquid uh, assets in the bank, including its loan book that are available to cover its liabilities. Um, you know, the shareholders aren't going to get any money, but but the depositors will and 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 the FDIC will probably not have to spend any of the taxpayers' money to to cover it. So that's different than other financial crises. It's certainly different than the crypto space and banks to cater to that. This is not a problem of a bank with poor assets. To the contrary, it's you know, its loans were by and large performing. It it uh, it was a very solid business. Uh, the issue is that they were exposed to interest rate risk more than credit risk and uh, a, a duration mismatch between their assets and liabilities in a way that was unusual for a bank, in part because a lot of their uh, uh, loans were a smaller portion of their overall asset base, which meant they were over-invested in long-term government securities. And those were by and large fixed rate securities as opposed to floating rate corporate loans. Great, uh, thanks for that. Um, let's transition over into interest rates uh, now. Um, you know, obviously the the Fed. Uh, there was some speculation again that they may um, have stopped in their tracks because of the ongoing bank crisis to not raise interest rates again. Um, what are your views on that? And then, um, secondly, so you want you want me to predict what the Fed's going to do at its next um, committee meeting about interest rates? I can do that, that, <laughs> and, I, that and I'm that probably going to be wrong. That is correct. I am. I'm not backing down from that question. Um, and then um, getting so, so. By the way, the short answer to that is no. Yeah. The Fed's going to raise rates because the Fed is managing to uh, the economy as a whole. It's trying to stop uh, inflation in its tracks if it can bring it back down from four and a half to you know the two to three percent range if it, if it can do that. 
Uh, are interest rates going up a challenge for the most exposed sectors of the economy, the the the, the riskiest pockets? The answer is yes, and that's the froth that they'd like to cool. Uh, I think there's this this issue with Silicon Valley Bank, with Signature Bank. Uh, you know, these are not things that I would think if I'm the Fed are going to disturb my interest rate policy. And one of the reasons I suspect that Secretary Yellen and uh, Chair Powell uh, and the FDIC came out so quickly with their uh, bank term funding backstop uh, over the weekend is to reassure the markets that and, and depositors that the banking system is sound, that they'll step up with ample liquidity to cover deposits. We do not need to have other runs on other banks. Uh, this is not a financial crisis. It's a bank. It's a it's a solvency and liquidity issue for certain select institutions uh, that are amply being covered by the governments, where the regulators moved, are moving very quickly to prevent this from being a bigger problem. So that leaves, I think, plenty of runway clear for macroeconomic policy to play its course. Great. Uh, well, for the ongoing um, folks that, um, you know, they're, they're uh, trying to finance projects today with high, in a high interest rate environment. Uh, and then uh, secondly, um, you know, for now and in the future, obviously the Inflation Reduction Act will create a series of tax incentives um, which has started to lend credence that the actual amount of project finance uh, in the cap stack is going to be smaller as a result. If you get to the base of ITC, PTC, and you get those adders, obviously it's going to be a little bit smaller. Um, so interested from your viewpoint, where do you, th how do you think high interest rates are going to affect uh, project finance uh, today and going forward. And um, if is this going to lead to any behavior or, or swings by some of these project finance banks, even in general, to like move a little bit away from the space a little bit or uh, just shift their strategy a little bit? Yeah, th those are two good questions. Um, let me look at the interest rate one kind of second and, and first start with where you, where you ended up, which is will people move away from the project finance space? I think the answer to that is no, because in general, project finance loans are very disciplined. They're, there's a thorough risk analysis, which is done based on the cash flows for a project. And so if, if you look, or, or in the case of financings for development platforms, for companies that are developing projects, you're looking at the cash available for distribution from operating assets. So in all of these cases, there's an analysis of the inputs, supply chains, the cost of, 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 of labor and materials that are going into building a, a project or to operating it and the fixed and the variable operating expenses. Uh, those capital costs drive most of it because most of the operating expenses for these assets, especially renewables, are fairly low relative to their cost. Uh, and, and one can rigorously figure out what those costs are and then look at the revenue side of the, of the, the ledger. And on the revenue side, you have, generally speaking, you're sailing into regulated markets whether you have a long-term contract or a hedge with a creditworthy counterparty uh, or a deep and liquid uh, tradable market, you're selling a commodity like energy that is relatively um, known. And if and as you slide down the scale from utility scale into CNI uh, and into residential, in the case of solar in particular, you know then of course leverage goes down. And for the most I think robust larger scale projects, which often by the way have Although they're non-recourse, they do have large, deep-pocketed developers often behind them. Um, the, the credit metrics are actually very solid. So I think in an area where corporate lending is more constrained, if there's a flight to quality 
project finance actually benefits from that. And, and we've seen that we, uh, you know, I've, I've been practicing law for, th for over 30 years and in the nineties, when we had financial crises, uh, you know, 91 to 93, uh, later in the decade, when we had the issues around, uh, Lehman brothers and Enron, um, the financial crises that we had from 2008 to 2010 in all of those situations, uh, the project finance market, especially in renewable energy did just fine. Had, it had access to, to capital. Uh, if you look at the other reason for that, I think it's government incentives. So investment tax credit, production tax credit, those, those put a nice thumb on the scale and they're meant to by design to encourage allocations of capital, uh, into this space. Now, when you have rising interest rates, that does mean that leverage might go down. It means that valuations of future cash flows have to go down because the discount rates are higher. So I think that does chill some of the M&A activity, uh, potentially, or at least it resets valuations in a way that could be challenging for some projects. I also think there's a, you know, a, if you're a, if you're a chief financial officer of a developer and you're trying to look at where, how to fill your capital stack. Yeah, you've got tax equity and yes, you have the cash equity from the sponsors and maybe now you need a little more of that. So that favors larger sponsors. You can still access bank markets and get debt for long-term capital. The shift from bank to bond or bond back to bank, uh, reflects the yield curve and expectations of rates as much as anything else, uh, as well as the depth in the market and what investors are willing to, to, to lend to. And I do think that there's some interesting calculations to be made there. You know, three years ago, you might've in an area of really low interest rates, uh, you might've been happy to lock in long-term fixed rate debt today. I think, you know, it might make much more sense to have a shorter term construction facility, maybe a mini perm, uh, even for operating assets, you know, uh, uh, shorter term bank led, uh, financings with interest rate risk in the out years, because right now, long-term rates are actually quite low and the expectation might be, you can refinance those assets or remonetize them, sell them to somebody else who can do that and recycle that cash for new developments, uh, at a, at a lower future rate than you might have today. So that I think does affect the financial calculus. Great. Um, so getting into, uh, M and a, um, about to say recently, but maybe 2023, there's been a lot to talk about already, but um, I think I noticed uh, I've noticed two things. Um, and it is, this goes back to, to last year too, and even before that, but the amount of foreign investment in the US renewable space has gotten bigger, a lot bigger, I think, uh, over the past few years. Um, recently, uh, part of that foreign capital has found its way into distributed generation, uh, in a few different forms. Um, I'm seeing a lot in, in CNI rooftop solar, uh, being the, some, some of the targets of this, um, investment. Uh, and, you know, I think it's easy for us to say that this is foreign investment parking their money in the renewable space for X, Y, and Z. But I'd be curious first, though, if you had any thoughts, Alan, specifically about CNI Solar and rooftop solar, and why there has been um, a concentrated capital push into the space as as of late, and then we can get into maybe the attractiveness of the markets for foreign investors. Second, sure. Um, you know, sometimes when we look at things that are right in our front of our face, they look a whole lot bigger than things that are further away, and. You know, you and I, we're very close to this segment of the market. So it looks huge to us when suddenly all this other money shows up. 
um, I, 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 I also do work in, in other areas and other sectors. And I, I think I'm seeing, you know, a, a, this trend is, is not only in renewables and certainly not only in solar CNI. So the United States, uh, you know, the dollar is very strong, which makes it expensive if you're buying in, but very stable once you have, uh, it means that the value of distributions is an expected future distributions is extremely high. And as I mentioned, we have, you know, pretty strong state and federal incentives, uh, in this area. So if I'm an investor from outside the United States looking at a market which is more mature, uh, and this, by the way, includes much of Europe, it includes uh, Japan, it includes certainly even Latin American markets, so that they're not huge sources of inbound foreign investment uh, here. But, you know, where can I get a relatively safe risk-adjusted return and the, with predictable cash flows? And the answer is, well, gee, United States, United States Renewables. So let's let's go let's go do that. So you know, I've represented companies that have sold interests in solar CNI developers uh, to investors from the UK, for instance. And now, why would they do that? The answer is because they can show their investors stronger risk-adjusted returns by deploying capital here in, in the United States. Um, these cycles also sometimes change. I remember, you know, the pivot from Asia in the late '90s to investments mainly in Latin America for the next you know decade. Uh, investors will chase yield when there's a market which has matured and you don't see as much investment. Here, what we're actually seeing with the energy transition is significant new investment in uh, in OECD countries in renewables. So there's it's like it's like a magnet attracting capital into the United States. We're starting also, by the way, to see that now in Germany with their significant uh, 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 new programs to increase investment in wind and solar. And you'll see it in other markets too, where there's viewed to be stability in revenues and in FX. Okay. Um, let's circle back to your earlier point about uh, platform M&A. And, um, you know, you referred to that in, when we talked about interest rates. Uh, there does continue to be platforms that are currently, you know, on, on for sale. Um, you know, some are developers. Uh, there's still the amount of uh, mature asset re asset recycling too is also right here right now you know and going on but um maybe talk a little bit more about your sense of valuations for these platforms and what we might see there um uh for the this year sort of an ongoing trend sure so i you know look development platforms i think what you're starting to see is is consolidation or, or at least scale with, if you have new investors coming in to provide, you know, additional equity. Uh, and a lot of the reason for that is that you need scale to compete in this market. Uh, you know, if, if you want to put together large, complicated trans, you know, tax equity, uh, transactions for a number of projects, well, it helps if you have some size and some relationships with, uh, especially relationships with the larger tax equity investors, uh, that dominate the market. Uh, if you say, well, gee, well, let's take advantage of the Inflation Reduction Act, allowing us to monetize tax credits on a you know, partnership election annual basis, we'll go sell them to other people. And now there'll be more people investing in tax credits. Well, that may be true, but you're going to have to give someone an, an indemnity that, that, it, that, that the credit is good and won't be jeopardized by future operating behaviors. So you're going to have to have a deep, a deep pocket. So again, that favors, frankly, larger scale developers. Uh, and in other areas of the market, uh, offshore wind, where I'm actually quite active, working on uh, over three gigawatts of projects, th those 
are huge and complex and require great scale and only large companies are really able to, to play a role in, in developing them. Um, yeah. And then lastly, I'd say if you look at the Inflation Reduction Act's uh, expansion of tax credits into other technologies, uh, carbon capture is a good example. Hydrogen is an example. Standalone energy storage is, a, is an excellent example. In a lot of those, uh, EV charging even, you know, doing networks, not just you know putting something in at the corner, all of those things will benefit from having new scale. So they create opportunities for new investors to come in at exactly the same time those investors are, are solely, sorely needed in order to expand uh, you know, quickly and with, and with size. Yeah, getting to that point of scale, we have heard a lot uh, talked about um, about sponsors even looking at things as like minority equity sales to uh, you know get the capital and you know as, as one way to go about it. Um, and I think it's also worth noting, you know, there's a lot of there. Although liquidity in the market is much more constrained than we've seen it, you know, for the last ten years, there's there still are, are big pools of capital sitting in private equity funds and. Uh, uh, infrastructure funds, including ones that need to roll over assets uh, from time to time, and they need to monetize, they need to find new ways to deploy capital. Uh, and that's true, not just in the largest deals that I might work on, but also on you know, you know middle market sized deals, which is you know, where you find the sweet spot of some more innovative right. infrastructure or quasi infrastructure types of investments, uh, or ones where there's more retail risk, like, like uh, distributed generation in the solar space, and some of the storage projects. So those pools of money are looking for places to go. And relatively speaking, the renewables market and infrastructure more broadly defined is attracting that capital. Great. By the way, it'll be interesting to see, you mentioned Silicon Valley Bank before, right? Interesting to see how clean tech, you know, carbon tracking technologies, uh, some of the more innovative or riskier uh, energy technologies uh, will benefit from or be exposed to the need to find replacement sources of capital and banking services when, you know, some of the incumbent experts like SVB, you know, are, are not available. Great. Well, uh, thanks for that, Alan. I think we've uh, done our allotted 30-minute uh, uh, spot here. So uh, thank you for taking the time. Um, you can actually see Alan speak live next week, if you'd like, next Tuesday, March 21st at uh, NPM's U.S. Development and Financing Forum. Uh, as as he should be, he'll be closing out the conference, um, as only he could, uh, on our capital formation panel with uh, Rick Campbell of Blackstone, Gorin Aria of LightSource BP, Bob Schoenher of Desri, Antonio Memo of Canada Fitzgerald, and Danielle Thompson of Fundamental Renewables. Uh, for more information about that conference, go to newprojectmedia.wavecast.io backslash US hyphen development hyphen finance hyphen forum hyphen 2023. That's a mouthful. We got to that's, that's a mouthful. <laughs> but anyway, Alan, thanks for joining the program and uh, talk soon. Thank you, sir. Hey, John. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.